Would you bow with me right now and let's ask God's blessing upon the time in his word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that people down through history as well as today, I like to creatively express the truths of your word, whether it be through painting as we're going to see today or music as we've experienced today, that, that Lord, indeed, the arts are rich with the expression of emotional and intellectual thoughts and many times, Lord, the thoughts that come right from your mind in your word. So God, help us to understand them rightly today as we talk about childhood, something that all of us can relate to because at the very least we've been there and at the very most we have children in our lives. Help us, Lord, to understand rightly what you've said and then uh, to have the courage to apply these things to our lives and in our world and sphere of influence. Thanks, God, for your grace to us. Thanks for your truth. Thank you that both of them have come to us in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, you don't have to be a big art fan to appreciate good art. I found that in life, and it's true. Any more than you need to be a food connoisseur to appreciate a good steak or a drama critic to appreciate a good play or a professional musician to appreciate a good tune. I've learned this in life. You don't have to be a big art fan to appreciate good art. Good art stands on its own. And so that's kind of what this series that we're in is all about. We're bouncing off of some good art, and as we match it up against the Scriptures, we're seeing what we can learn about our spiritual and relational lives in the process. You might remember that it all began for me a few years ago when I was visiting our nation's capital and went to the National Gallery of Art. And while I was there, kind of became enamored with some pictures there entitled The Voyage of Life by an artist by the name of Thomas Cole. Thomas Cole, you might remember, was an early American landscape painter who founded one of our country's first schools or styles of painting called the Hudson River School. And what the Hudson River School is about was painting very realistic, if not breathtaking, landscape scenes in hopes of evoking some type of an emotional response. And this is precisely the effect that it had on me as I viewed Cole's most popular pieces, a series entitled The Voyage of Life. You see, taking us visually and allegorically through the four main seasons of life, childhood, teenage years, adulthood, and then old age, these paintings are designed to teach us some key lessons about each life, specifically who we are as human beings, including our joys and our sorrows, and then also even about who God is and how he wants to be front and center in each season of our voyage. And so last week we kicked off our look by discussing some key things about the nature of the voyage itself. And we saw that life is a mixed bag, remember this, of good and bad. That the voyage seems long, but it's over before you know it. And then most importantly, the fact that God desires for us to journey with Him in this world, certainly not alone. And this week, with no more introductory matters left, we want to explore the very first season of life, that of childhood. Childhood. Something that all of us can relate to. Why? Because we've been there. And even if you didn't like your childhood, my guess is that you have children involved in your life even today as a parent or a grandparent or an aunt, an uncle, or even a, a good friend that has some kids. And so all of us can still relate to this idea of childhood. And to propel us into a clear understanding of what Cole was trying to get when it comes to childhood, I want us to look more closely at the picture that I'm going to put up here on the screen and then also in your bulletin. And we put a very 
good copy of Cole's first painting here in your bulletin. In fact, I've been looking at Cole's stuff for about three, four years now, preached on this in other churches, and I got to tell you, I've never seen such a good reproduction of his stuff as what you have in your bulletin there. I mean, it's actually frameable, and so our communications party, uh, department did a great job of reproducing Cole's work here. And so as you look at that first picture, uh, let, let me read for you some of Cole's own words as he describes what he's trying to get at here. Look up here on the screen. He says, The dark cavern is emblematic of our earthly origin and the mysterious past. The Egyptian lotus in the foreground of the picture is symbolic of human life. Now focus on those two phrases there, dark cavern and earthly origin. I don't know about you, but that's eerily like Genesis 1 and 2 when it says that we came from the dust and the dust that we go to, right? I mean, that's what Cole's trying to get at here, that we've been made from the stuff of earth, that we've been created from the stuff of earth. The, the human beings are an organic creation, as we'll see in a minute, by Almighty God. And then he mentions that Egyptian lotus there. And it's actually a water flower to you and I today, and it blooming there out of the dark waters, as he says, symbolizing new and created life. Again, very similar to Genesis chapter 1, where it says God created the earth out of the void, out of the darkness he created this place. Please see, Cole's giving us some allusions here to some very key biblical categories. And then focusing a bit more closely on the boat and the stream, listen to how Cole, 160 years ago, describes what he's getting at after this. He says, The boat, composed of the figures of the hours, images the thought that we are born on the hours down the stream of life. And now we're getting somewhere. The stream of life. You can't get a more clear biblical image than this one. It's right out of Psalm 46 that says, The river whose streams make glad the city of God. It's a stream, a river, carrying the boat, symbolizing our journey and passing of time. And I love this illusion of a stream. Because you see, a stream is taking you and I somewhere, God's stream, and though we have some control with the rudder, the reality is it's providence, it's his sovereignty, it's this stream that's carrying us here. And then obviously you have the guardian angel, God's emissary in this picture, sent to watch over and protect the child through each successive leg of the entire voyage. And so add all this up, folks. You got the dark cavern of creation. You got the boat, the flowers that bloom out of the void. You have the river reminiscent of Psalm 46. And so here is the first extremely relevant point that you and I need to take from Cole's allegorical painting here. And that is that childhood is a gift from God the Creator. It's true. Childhood, first thing we need to know, is a gift from God the Creator. In other words, please see this, we didn't start the process. We didn't create the cavern, nor the stream, nor the boat, nor even ourselves. And it wasn't some blind, random roll of the dice that got us here, no. The point is, is that life is a gift. A gift from above, designed and created by a grand designer and creator. And it all begins with childhood, one of the greatest gifts of all. In fact, look with me at how the Bible declares this to us. Just in the very second chapter of the Bible, look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. This is amazing. It says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. It kind of already alluded to that, right? The fact that Cole, with his dark cave and earthy origin, points out that from the dust of the ground we are made earthy stuff. 
But then notice that not only did we as human beings come from created material, but it tells us that God is the one who made us, right? That God is the one who breathed his life, his image into us. So God took created matter, his intervention and work, his spirit, and he created us as human beings. Far different, vastly different than anything else in the created order. That's what human beings are, organic in the image of God. And then if there were any doubts, look at how the psalmist would go on to put this years later while reflecting on his own life and childhood. Look at Psalm 139, verse 15. He says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Again, those two themes popping up again. The fact that we're made of organic, earthy stuff, but it was God the one who made us. He's the one who skillfully wrought us. I love it. Don't miss this, folks. Life, right from the get-go, has been made and given to us by God. Most of you know who J.R.R. Tolkien is from watching The Lord of the Rings. He's the guy who wrote that trilogy of books that we made into movies just a few years ago. And in 1955, while visiting the United States here from Britain, he was being interviewed by the famous New York Times Book Review. And at one point, an interviewer asked him what made him tick. And I love his answer. He said, I don't tick, I'm not a machine. Isn't that great? I don't tick, I'm not a machine. And outside of being a smart aleck, what's he trying to get at there? Well, what he's simply trying to say is that I'm not some machine, a resource to be harnessed. I'm an organic being made in the image of God. We know that from Tolkien's worldview, complete with his breath on me, complete with his image upon me as a human being. And the point is, is that this is how God wants us to see childhood, as a gift from himself, the creator. And now folks, with each of these three main points that we're looking at today, I'm going to give you a practical take-home point, a take-home challenge, if you will, defined by one action word, that once we get the point, what are we to do with this Monday through Saturday, right? How this is going to change our lives at all. So here is the first practical point that goes along with this idea of childhood and life being a gift from God the Creator, and that is that you're to recognize it then as such. Recognize it as such. And some of you are thinking right now, well, recognize it, Jamie. I mean, how else could I recognize life and childhood if not as a gift from God the Creator? And I would simply respond, have you been reading the news for the last 100 years? Have you read a recent high school biology textbook? Have you ever visited a natural history museum? Have you ever read the letters to the editors of any major newspaper, including the Tribune or Sun-Times? I mean, it's everywhere. Are they at times competing? And I'll show you in a minute, even contrary view of life, especially life that comes from the womb, that argues that it's not a product of God or some type of design. It's not a creation of an all-powerful and all-loving God. It's an ever-involving mass of chemicals formed randomly over millions of years into the form of life that we see us today. It's called Darwinian evolution. And the reality is, is that as much as we try to marry theism and evolution, and, and it's actually a good attempt to try to wrestle with the issues. I mean, it's a good attempt to wrestle with an old earth. It's a good attempt to, to wrestle with some of the things like Chuck Colson points out in his book, uh, How Now Shall You Live with Microevolution versus Macroevolution or Change Within Species versus Change Among Species. I mean, there's some real issues to wrestle with. 
But the reality is, folks, is that once you get down to the bottom line, now don't miss this, there is a disconnect, a massive difference between classic Darwinian evolution that says that we evolved out of nothingness through random chance over billions of years and the idea that the Bible says that we are created in the image and by Almighty God. Two very different and quite frankly, competing worldviews. It's true. And so I ask you here this morning, how do you see and recognize life? Especially life that comes from the womb, packaged in these little ones that we saw earlier that spring forth from us bigger ones. Do you see them as a product of chance, a mass of randomly formed chemicals, just a little bit more complex than the animal world around us? Or do you recognize them as wonderful and unique creations of Almighty God? Because I will tell you this, the answer to this question will determine how you view kids and even people around you in all other aspects of your worldview. It's true. I love how Bill Bryson kind of points this out in his book, A Short History of Nearly Everything. Bill Bryson is a popular author, naturalist, and not exactly an evangelical Christian. He's a writer and a thinker and a humorist, and in this little book that he wrote, it was his attempt to make sense of the world around us, compiling biology and geology and archaeology and astronomy and chemistry into an understanding of what he says, and I quote, how we went from there being nothing to there being something. And at one point in the book, I want you to listen to what he says, because I think this is very revealing in answering the question how you or I should probably try to view life. Listen to what he says. He says, no one really knows, but there be maybe as many as a million types of protein in the human body, and each one is a little miracle. He says, by all laws of probability, protein shouldn't exist. To make a protein, you need to assemble amino acids in a particular order, in much of the way that you assemble letters in a particular order to spell a word. He says, for example, to make collagen, you need to arrange 1,055 amino acids in precisely the right sequence. He says the chances of a 1,055 sequence molecule like collagen spontaneously self-assembling are frankly nil. It just isn't going to happen. He says to grasp what a long shot its existence is, visualize a standard Las Vegas slot machine, but broaden it greatly to about 90 feet to be precisely to accommodate 1,055 spinning wheels instead of the usual three or four and 20 symbols on each spinning wheel, one for each common amino acid. He asked, how long would you have to pull the handle before all 1,055 symbols came up in the right order? He says, effectively forever. Even if you reduce the number of spinning wheels to 200, he says, which is actually a more typical number of amino acids for a protein, the odds against all 200 coming up in a prescribed sequence are 1 in 10 to the 260th power. That's one with to 10 with 260 zeros after it. That itself is a larger number, he says, than all the atoms of the universe. Yet he closes by saying we're talking about several hundred thousand types of protein, perhaps even a million, each unique and each, as far as we know, vital to the maintenance of a sound and happy you. And we're to somehow believe, folks, that all of this happened by chance. We're somehow to believe that the blind forces of impersonal nature caused everything we see, including life that we have today. Quite frankly, it's just not likely. And that's saying it mildly. And so I ask you, how do you view life? Again, I don't care where you fall on the continuum of science versus religion. That's not the issue. But at the beginning, 
Was God the one who created this world or not? Or was it blind random chance? The answer to that question, history has shown us, is going to determine how you view human beings. It's fascinating, Joseph Stalin, the Russian dictator, who was obviously an atheistic humanist in his worldview, once said this. He once said, one death is a tragedy, a thousand is just a statistic. And he cheapened life. He became callous to it, really, but don't miss that it flowed logically from his worldview. I mean, guys like he and Hitler and Mussolini and people like that from our last century were all imbued with an atheist, humanist worldview that led them to cheapen life as you and I know it. And yet compare and contrast that with Mother Teresa, obviously a compassionate theist in her worldview when she was alive. And once when she was looking at a newborn baby that she was holding, who was born into the hopeless slums of Calcutta, with her face glowing and triumphant, she said this. She said, see, there's life. There's life in her. And dignity was added, built upon a worldview that childhood is a gift from God the Creator. Truly, folks, the first thing that we learn from Cole's painting here, confirmed by God's word to us, is that life in these little ones before us is a gift, a gift from the Creator Himself. Recognize it as such. It will take you so far in how you relate. Now, as many of you who know me, you know that at this point in our message, we're just getting warmed up, right? We're just ramping up, so there's more. And here's the second thing that this painting teaches us in the Word of God as well, and that is that childhood is filled with joy and wonder. Don't you love it? Childhood is filled with joy and wonder. Look at me again at Cole's painting, and again, listen to how he describes in his own words what he's trying to communicate here. He says, the rosy light of the morning, the luxuriant flowers and plants are emblems, now get this, of the joyousness of early life. He says, joyousness and wonder are characteristic emotions of childhood. And that's what you sense when you look at this painting, right? I mean, it's a sunny day. The flowers are in full bloom. The colors are vivid. The landscape is full and breathtaking. And the child, I just love this scene, is like all excited, arms up, about ready to jump up and down as toddlers do when their passions go farther than any of the words that they haven't even learned yet can communicate, right? I mean, that's the scene that Cole has painted for you and I here. It's joy and wonder, and it's what childhood is all about. And what you need to know is that the Bible, and especially Jesus, communicates these exact same things. In fact, at one point, Jesus took some kids around him and tried to communicate this to his audience. Look at Matthew chapter 18, verses 2 through 5. It says, and he, Jesus, called a child to himself and set him before them and said, truly I say to you, and I get this, unless you are converted and become like children, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as his child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And let me ask you folks, we've got to wrestle with this. When Jesus says that one cannot come to God for eternal life, that one cannot enter into a saving relationship with him without becoming like children, what do you think he means? I mean, that's kind of a loaded statement. What's he getting at there? I mean, most of us are adults. They were adults who Jesus was speaking to back then, and he says, hey, unless you become like a kid, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. What's he mean by that? 
And to answer this question, let's maybe ask another question, and maybe this will help us, and that is that when you think of the fruits of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5 that would be written some 30 years after Jesus taught here, actually about 20 years, what is the very first fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that shows us that new life has entered into one's soul through the gospel of Jesus? Anybody know what the first fruit of the Spirit is? Love. And what's the second one? Joy. What's the third one? Peace. And then things like kindness and, and goodness, right? And so think about it. Could it be that when Jesus equates conversion to his kingdom with becoming like a child, and then when Paul lists the fruits of the Spirit, things like joy, peace, kindness, and goodness, could there be a connection? And I think there is. I think that Jesus told us chose a child as his object lesson for spirituality because in children is a natural joy and wonder, a carefree trust, a contagious delight that most adults have lost and need to find again if they're ever going to truly begin to know God and relate in a healthy way this side of heaven. Isn't that awesome? In other words, in kids is this joy, this wonder, this dependency that you and I tend to diss once we become adults. And Jesus is saying, if you're ever going to relate to your heavenly father, recognize that in kids because that's what he wants from you. I love a little poem that made its way onto the internet that despite my research is unknown in its origin. I just can't find who originally wrote it, but it speaks on its own. It's actually classic. It says, when I look at a patch of dandelions, I see a bunch of weeds that are going to take over my yard. Kids see flowers for mom and blowing white stuff that you can wish on. When I look at an old drunk and he smiles at me, I see a smelly, dirty person who probably wants money and I look away. Kids see someone smiling at them and they smile back. When I hear music that I love, I know I can't carry a tune and don't have a lot of rhythm, so I sit self-consciously and listen. Kids feel the beat and move to it. They sing out the words, and if they don't know them, they make up their own. When I feel the wind on my face, I brace myself against it. I feel it messing up my hair and pulling me back when I walk. Kids close their eyes, spread their arms, and fly with it until they fall to the ground laughing. When I pray, I say, thee and thou, and grant me this and give me that. Kids say, hi, God. Thanks for the toys and my friends. Please keep the bad dreams away tonight. Sorry I don't want to go to heaven yet. I'd miss mom and dad. When I see a mud puddle, I step around it. I see muddy shoes and clothes and dirty carpets. Kids sit in it. They see dams to build and rivers to cross and worms to play with. And then it closes by saying, no wonder God loves the little children. Amen? It's true. I mean, God loves that about kids. And quite frankly... He wants to love that about us. And so what are we to do with this? I mean, we see this in our kids. What are we to do with this aspect of them? Here it is. Look up on the screen. And that's we're to nurture it as such. We're to nurture it as such. And so God made kids and gave them to this world as a gift, and we're to recognize it. And God has filled them with joy and wonder, and we're to nurture it. But then the question becomes, how? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, how are we to do this? As we just established, um, most kids or most adults, by the time they grow out of childhood, have lost this aspect of joy and wonder. And so talk about the blind leading the blind, right? I mean, how are we to nurture this aspect in kids if we've kind of already lost it in our own lives? And though it goes against much of the grain of culture and society, here's what I'm becoming more and more convinced of as we go along, folks, and that is that we primarily nurture our children, I get this, through engaging them and resourcing them on a spiritual and relational level. Let me repeat that. It is so important that you get this this morning. 
We engage our children on a relational and spiritual level. In other words, we pour into them this joy, this wonder, this, this idea of relationality and spirituality that we get as adults from Almighty God into them. And by so doing, we nurture them. And here is why and how this becomes such a formidable challenge for many of us as parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, and that is that our culture, the culture that you and I live in today, adds a subtly different twist to this idea of nurture. And tell me this is, if this isn't true. Our culture tells us to not engage and resource them spiritually and relationally, but to propel and resource our kids intellectually, physically, economically, vocationally, and politically. And folks, there is a huge difference between engaging and resourcing our kids spiritually and relationally and propelling our kids intellectually, physically, economically, vocationally, and politically. I mean, there's a big difference. And though I'm going to submit to you in a minute that surely both of these things are important, what we're going to see as a great challenge to us is which comes first, which is the priority in our lives. But don't miss it. You and I live in a culture that tells us to live below that line, not above that line. And so we send our kids to the best school. We hammer into them the importance of a good education. We drive them to succeed. We get them involved in lots of sports and activities. We provide money and material things for them that the rest of the world salivates after. We spend loads of energy preparing them for their jobs. We even legislate and vote things into being like laws and tax credits to help us do all of this. I mean, we propel and resource our kids intellectually, physically, economically, vocationally, and politically. And by doing so, our culture sends a message to the kids, now don't miss this, that these are the most important things. That these are the things that matter more than anything else. And though obviously I would submit to you that these things matter, I mean, if you were to look at the way that Kim and I have raised our now 18-year-old and 16-year-old and 14-year-old, just about ready to turn, you know that we've done these things too. I mean, good parents do these things. But the point is, is that if you do these things over and above the other things of engaging and resourcing our kids spiritually and relationally, then you've messed up what nurture is about. And further, what God's Word tells us is that you will take the joy and wonder out of your kids by about the time of age 12, if not earlier, if the extent of your nurture is reduced to these five second-placed activities. That's the point. These things are good. Below the line is good. But God comes along and he says, first things first. Engage and resource your kids relationally and spiritually. And you know what the cool thing about this is? Is that it doesn't take money. It takes very little money to resource your kids relationally and spiritually. You know what it takes? A whole and centered you. That's what it takes. It takes you involved in your kids' lives, or your grandkids' lives, or your nieces' and nephews' lives, or your friends' kids' lives on such a level that you know what spirituality is about, you know what relationality is about, and as you spend lo loads of time with them, you start to nurture these areas of joy and wonder in them. I, I love the little story that I ran across that appeared in the Christian Reader a few years back. It was a story of a successful Christian businessman by the name of Bill who during one of his rare morning devotions with his two daughters, realized that he hadn't been spending as much time with the girls as he should have been. And after apologizing, he said to them, hey, you know, girls, it's not always important the quantity of time we spend together as much as it is the quality of time we spend together. We've all heard that. 
And his two girls, Kristen, age six, and Madison, age four, didn't quite understand it. So their dad went on to explain. He said, well, quantity time means how much time, and quality means how good the times we spend together are. Which would you rather have from me? And without missing a beat, Kristen replied, well, dad, quality time and a lot of it. <laughs> Pretty smart kid if you ask me, right? And so let me just ask you, and this isn't to put a big guilt trip on us, but I think we need to wrestle with this as we look to nurture our kids. How much quality time do you spend with your kids, not now, now before you answer that, on a spiritual, highly relational level? In other words, how often do you pray with and for them? How often do you read the Bible with them or talk to them at least about biblical truths? How much hangout time do you have with your kids, especially as they get older? Uh, Bill Hybels wrote a book years ago in which he said that in his life it takes about 100 hours of hangout time with his teenager in order to get one teachable moment. And boy, have I found that to be true. If I try to beat into my kids, especially as they're teenagers, you know, truth after truth after truth, it's just going over their head. Spend a lot of hangout time with them. You get one chance usually uh, to, to communicate some stuff. But what kind of questions do you ask with them when you're in a high relational mode with them? Are they spiritual things? Are they relational things? What role does church or uniting with other believers play in your family beyond just showing up for church Sunday morning? Here's the point, folks. Childhood is filled with joy and wonder. It's in them already because the image of God is in them. It's how, he made, it's how he's made kids. But it takes constant nurturing, as we all know, to keep it alive, of which you pouring into your kids is the ace in the hole. It's you nurturing them. Now, it's interesting. After Jesus gives us this powerful object lesson about children and the relational and spiritual realm, after this wonderful encouragement full of positive intonations and uplifting messages, he then goes on to like switch gears totally and give a formidable and downright abrasive challenge. I mean, if you read Matthew 6 in one setting, it's going to be like one of the most schizophrenic chapters in the Bible because you have Jesus, you know, hugging these little children and encouraging the parents with them, and all of a sudden Jesus is going to whack the parents there with an incredible, challenging truth. Look at verse 6, right on the coattails of what Jesus has just said about the children, what we just looked at. Look at what he says next. He says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. I love it when some people say to me sometimes, and I'm being maybe a little bit snarky, they'll say to me, you know, why can't you be more like Jesus? Why can't you be nice and gentle and meek? And I'll say, have you ever read the New Testament? I mean, yes, Jesus was gentle and meek at times, but there's other times where, man, he was so hard-hitting. He'd look at guys like Peter and one of his closest followers and say, get behind me, Satan. Wouldn't you like it if your best friend called you Satan? I mean, he said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of man, but the things, or the things of God, but the things of man. And then in this setting here, He's helping the parents learn how to be good parents and saying, you know, nurture these kids and, you know, prioritize them. And obviously he says, but by the way, if you cause them to stumble, it'd be better for you to tie cement to your shoes and jump off the Brooklyn Bridge. That's what he's saying here. And you and I got to wrestle with, why is he doing this? I mean, what's he getting at? What's the point? And here it is. And it's the third and final thing I want to share with you today. And that is that childhood by design, this is what I think Jesus is getting at, is narrow in scope. And it must be guarded and protected by those in charge. You're going to like this. Childhood, by design, is narrow in scope. And as a result, it needs to be protected by those in charge. In other words, this joy and wonder that we have seen, these traits that God is after 
in these kids before us are precious things. And by design, the life of a child is somewhat and relatively innocent, narrow in its understanding of the harsh and fallen and cruel world around us. And the boundaries of a child's world are obviously much closer and stronger, and he or she can only take in so much at at so much time. And so God made moms and dads, as well as I might add, grandparents and grandmothers and grandfathers and aunts and uncles and stepchildren and older brothers and sisters to guard and protect the life of a child so that he or she can grow at an even pace and grow in such a way that they understand what true spirituality and relationality are all about. It's fascinating, folks. Cole had the same idea when he painted this first painting in the Voyage of Life series that we're looking at. Looking one last time at the painting, this time at the painting as a whole, listen to what Cole says about this aspect of childhood. I love this. He says, the close banks and the limited scope of the scene indicate the narrow experience of childhood and the nature of its pleasures and desires. Focus on those two phrases, close banks and limited scope of scene. And next week, it's going to be interesting. We're going to look at the youth picture. And in the youth picture, the whole thing's going to open up and there's going to be castles to build and mountains to climb. That's the youth picture, but not yet. This is childhood, close banks, limited scope. And then in the third week, we're going to look at the adult picture that's going to affect many of us, and the skies are going to turn dark, and the waters are going to get really rough, but not yet, because we're in childhood, close banks, and limited scope of scene, right? You get the point. The life of a child, by design, is narrow in scope, limited in how much he or she can and should see the world and all that it contains. And so what do we do about this aspect of childhood then? What's our take home on this? Well, here's the final thing I'm going to share with you, and that is that we need to protect it as such. So when it comes to life being designed by God, we need to recognize it. When it comes to this idea of joy and wonder, we need to nurture it. But the last thing we need to hear is that God also calls us to protect childhood and protect them from the things around them. And yet this begs the question, protect them from what specifically? I mean, think about this. Don't let this pass you by. Um, You and I live in a culture today that, unlike most any other culture in the history of the world, does a very admirable job of protecting our kids physically. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, back in the Middle Ages, if you lived, I mean, you know, you'd be just scared to death about marauding Turks coming, you know, to your town in Western Europe to take away your children. And yet today we don't have a threat like that, at least right now in America, and we've done an incredible job, I think, in our society of protecting our kids. We have amber alerts. Most of us watch our kids like hawks. We teach them not to talk to strangers or get into strange cars. We drive them to school more than my parents ever did. Uh, Some parents, I don't know if you noticed this, when you go to Disneyland, even put their kids on leashes, right? Maybe some of you. I mean, we are really, really committed in our culture to protecting our kids physically, and I think we've done a very admirable job. And as you saw earlier, we even do a good job of propelling and resourcing our kids vocationally and economically and politically. But as we wrap up, let me suggest four key areas that we might want to think about turning the heat up on when it comes to protecting our children spiritually and relationally that I find that many well-meaning and good-hearted parents might want to give some more thought to. You ready for these? First is, is, how about considering the messages of the media? The messages of the media. You and I, we all know this, live in a media-saturated culture, right? I mean, everything from Nintendo to MTV to movies to computers. I mean, our kids spend an immense amount of time, more than we ever did, listening to the messages of media. 
And yet when you listen close to many of the messages of media, I think it just screams to us that we need to protect our children, especially as they're younger and as they get older, from many of these messages. Some of you are saying, what are you talking about? It's fascinating. When I was in China a few years back, um, I realized something I hadn't realized just being here in the States all my life, and that is that, that obviously most people in, in uh, Eastern Europe and in Africa and in the Far East tend to have a negative view of the United States. You ever notice that? We don't have the most shining reputation. And by the way, we didn't even before uh, 9-11. And, and one of the reasons is, is because they get most of their understanding of America from cable television. They do. Most of them have never been here. So they get most of their understanding from MTV, cable news networks, HBO, and Showtime is how they understand our culture. And most of them see us as incredibly decadent, incredibly spoiled. And so think about it. What does it say then about a child who then sits in front of a TV all day or PlayStation or Xbox or now podcasts? What view of the world do you think they're going to get? And again, folks, I'm not a legalist here. Very few people have accused me of that. But I do get shocked when I walk into a movie theater and I'm watching a PG-13 and I see a six-year-old there. And I think to myself, I wonder if the parents really thought about that. I can remember when my son Paul was about 11 years old and there was a PG-13 movie he wanted to go to. And he said, Dad, can I go to this movie? And I didn't have an answer because I was wrestling with it. You know, I'm thinking, well, come on. You know, I mean, so I went to one of my good friends who had kids about my age and really respected this guy. He's really balanced and wise and not really legalistic, but had good boundaries around his kids. And I said, Dave, I said, Paul wants to go to this, you know, movie that's PG-13. He's 11. What do you think? And I'll never forget his answer. He looks at me and said, well... He said, you know, Kathy and I have always figured that if Hollywood thinks that only kids uh, 13 or older should see it, and Hollywood having a standard of living far less than what, or standard of values far less than we do, then maybe it's not good for our 11-year-old to go to it. And I thought, why can't I think like that? <laughs> so from that point on, and Paul hated hearing this, every time he'd say, can I go to a PG-13 movie, I'd say, is it rated PG-11? And he'd go, Dad. And I go, no, really. If it's rated PG-11, you can go. If it's rated PG-13, then when you're 13, we'll talk about it, right? Just seemed like a no-brainer to me. Are we protecting our kids from the messages of media? I hope we are. That second thing you might want to consider protecting your kids from are the pressures and waves of culture. In other words, similar to the media, culture itself has waves of how we do parenting that I'm not sure are always good for them. Some of you are saying, what are you talking about? Well, one of the things researchers have pointed out recently is what they call the overprogrammed kid. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The fact that when you and I were young and we were bored, what did our parents tell us to do? Go away and go do something. Just don't get in trouble, right? Go build a tree for it. Go wander around town. Go do something. And if you get in trouble, I'm going to kill you. I mean, that's the way that our parents parented us, right? And yet today, when our kids come to us and say they're bored, what do we do? We get them involved in another activity, right? So we go from dance class to track practice to a church event, and we just have our kids go, go, go in all these programs. And again, most of them, as I said earlier, are good things. But the reality is, think about this, is that if all our kids do is go from one event to another, what kind of view of the world does that give them? What kind of view of, of, of just downtime and time for their own creativity just to come out of them? I, I mean, experts are saying maybe we've overprogrammed our kids. And yet most of us do this because it's just the wave of our culture. So I just challenge you, as you think about protecting your children, think about some of the waves of culture and simply ask yourself, because you're the one who has to decide, is this what's best in protecting and nurturing my child? Kim and I have done this for years, and it's just helpful. You'll make your own decisions on this. 
And then the third thing you might want to consider in this idea of protecting your kids, and I love this one, is how about protecting them from themselves? From themselves. In other words, it brings up the issue of discipline. I don't know if you noticed this, but if you were raised in the 1950s or the 1960s, discipline was high, verbal love was low. Do you all remember that? I do. Like my dad rarely ever told me he loved me. My mom always told me that. She said, oh, your father loves you so much. So why don't I hear from it from him? Anyways, you know, but, uh, but, but dad never said that. But dad would discipline really well, right? James Dobson, an expert on the family, pointed out recently that our culture has done this with that. We've just flipped it around. So now we dote on our kids like crazy and tell them we love them, right? I mean, which is good. We tell our kids all the time we love them. I mean, you know, they got that message. But the discipline aspect has kind of gotten real low. And he suggests maybe we shoot for medium discipline. I, I love this. I love this. The uh, guy said a while back that or discipline is not the enemy of enthusiasm. You like that phrase? Discipline is not the enemy of enthusiasm. And it's true. And the reality is, is that your kids and my kids are fallen by nature. They are. They deal with the same temptations and pressures that you and I deal with, especially as they get older. They have fallen souls, and they need to learn to protect their souls from themselves. And discipline and biblical understanding helps them do that. And then the last thing, last category I'd encourage you to maybe think about protecting your kids from, and this is the hardest one for those of us to hear, but it's you. It's you. And you're saying, what are you talking about, Jamie? Well... We all know that it's our job to raise our kids and to recognize and to nurture and protect. But any of you here willing to admit that you have no baggage that you brought into adulthood on? I'm not. I know that there is so much baggage I brought into adulthood from my childhood. And to the degree that I process that and deal with it is to the degree that I will not pass it on to my kids. Amen? I love how Bill Heibel said it years ago. He said, don't hand off a broken baton to your children. And I think that's a great challenge for you and I. That the more we journey along in our own spiritual and relational lives and have an evident amount of self-awareness of what's going on inside of us, it's to the degree that we can protect our kids from some of that stuff that we're still dealing with. Folks, when you think about it, childhood is really such a precious and wonderful gift from God, designed to be nurtured and protected by us, those in charge. What an incredibly high calling we have. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that... Uh, through the, the pictures of Thomas Cole and through the obvious affirmations of your word. You really do show us, Lord, what this whole season of life, childhood, in essence, is all about. And Father, if I don't miss my guests, because I, I know how many of these folks think here, they're such good-hearted, wonderful people. We all want to help the childhood of the kids around us to be, by design, how you created it to be. And so, God, we're going to recognize it as such, as a gift from you. But we're going to nurture it with joy and wonder. Help us to do that, Lord, especially so those of us who have gotten too stuck in adulthood. And Father, as well, we're going to protect it. And not just physically, God, because we've done pretty well at that, but from the media and from the waves of culture and, Lord, from ourselves and even from our kids' perspective themselves. So, God, give us grace. Give us wisdom on how to do this. And Lord, more than anything else, help us to love the kids around us. And, Lord, help us to point them to you the author and the giver, the savior, the redeemer of life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.